Good morning. Hi, friends. Uh, well, my name is Ryan. I'm trying to see if, if there's anybody here we haven't had the chance to meet yet. Uh, my name is Ryan Smith. I serve as the teaching pastor here. As we uh, have been in a little series called Peculiar, where we've been looking at and studying uh, the early church, the first Christians, and the kind of distinctives that made them collective. What made them uh, peculiar? What made them distinct? What set them apart from their Roman neighbors? And so as we've been recapturing these distinctives, we've been looking at how they leaned into what we've been calling the ethics of Easter. We've been looking at how they transformed the world through these key distinctives and asking, what would it look like for us as the people of Jesus on the west side, to lean in and recapture some of these for ourselves. And so uh, over the past couple of weeks, you might remember if you've been with us, we looked at the first practice of the early church was them being a, a community comprised of a new identity that, that united people from diverse backgrounds and faiths and ethnicities. They brought people from all over into this new identity of people that say, you know, we are the people of Jesus. We are Christians. We're the church. And that stepping away from and stepping into this deep level of community led for the Romans to refer to the early Christians as antisocial atheists. They were antisocial. They were breaking up all of our little categories for who goes with who. And being atheists is they're rejecting all of the gods of Rome to get behind this new Jesus guy. And then last week we looked at their radical care for the poor and the suffering, which got them called uh, promiscuous generosity from the Romans. They saw these Christians as being as this people just promiscuous, general, like everybody and anybody around them who had need, the church were the people that were there caring for and meeting those. And so today we're looking at a third distinctive of the early church, and we've got to begin with a little bit of early church uh, trivia, which is... Uh, a new game show that I'm uh, producing. So anybody that's got like the connections, uh, I think it would work really well, um, early church trivia. So here's my question for you guys, if you guys will humor me. Uh, what was, or maybe I mean, most of you probably don't know the answer, but we can make some guesses here. What was the most quoted Bible verse in the first 300 years of Christianity? What was the Bible verse that showed up in the writings and sermons of the first Christians over and over and over again more than any other? And this is where you guys can give guesses if you want. Like, so loving your neighbor, maybe. And so there's nodding, cool. Maybe John 3.16, that's a famous one. We see that at like wrestling matches today. You know, for God so loved the world. Or maybe Psalm 23, loving your neighbor, maybe. No, it's actually Matthew 5, verse 44. You'll see it behind me, where Jesus said, not love your enemies, but love your, or not love your neighbor, but love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. This was the verse that in all of the sermons, all of the writings for the first Christians, as they're figuring out what it means to be the people of Jesus, this is what sermon after sermon, writing after writing, the early church is just reflecting on and setting forward. And this is worth taking like a second to really pause and consider the implications of this. This is the Bible verse that Christians held as central to their movement for the first 300 years. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Enemy love was the central distinctive of the early church. 
And they weren't living in a vacuum or kind of like, you know, safe peacetime stuff. They were a community that was excluded and persecuted and killed for their faith. And yet, time and again, they withheld retaliation as they were fed to beasts, as they were beheaded, as they were crucified. These were people who were forgiving their enemies and praying for their executioners. In a letter to the Emperor Hadrian in 125, written by a fellow named Aristides, he goes on to describe the Christians as these strange people who comfort their oppressors and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies, he writes. And so all of this is leading the Romans, just like we talked about, antisocial atheists or promiscuous generosity for this week, for Romans to call Christians obstinate fools. Christians were obstinate in that they had an unwavering allegiance and faith to Jesus, no matter the cost. And the foolishness was that, that they are forgiving the very, their, their enemies in all of this. That they somehow had this allegiance that said only Jesus is king, and yet they are forgiving and loving the very people who stand opposed to it. It's foolishness in their eyes. And so Jesus' enemy love was so common, so central to the early church that it just grew out of what we see represented within the New Testament. Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in some form or fashion shows up in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3, Galatians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 12, James chapter 3, the whole book of Revelation, and that's just off the top of my head this week. Like I didn't go Google searching for that. It was central to the early church, central to the writings of the early church. And if you'll turn or tap to Romans chapter 12, beginning in 14, excuse me. Today we're looking at how Paul picks up on Jesus' teaching of enemy love and he begins to situate it in, in a new ethic for the people living in Rome. He starts paraphrasing it excuse me, and opening it up deeper and fuller. What does it mean to love our enemies? So he, uh, Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. Beginning in verse 14, once you get there, would you join me in standing if you're able? And if you don't have your Bible with you or, or you're still spinning for Romans and you can't find it, uh, you'll see it behind me as well so you can read with me. Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 14, and we'll go down to 21, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into this. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Rome, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray for our time together this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for got the example of the early church and just how reflecting on who they were in their world God, that there is a, a calling for us as we look at the scriptures and we look to their example, a way for us to, to lean in and to find the kind of life that you've called us to uh, here in our city. And so we pray that as we look at this, this distinctive in the early church of enemy love, today you would shape us by this word, that we would become a community who truly um, 
loves our enemies as you have loved us. We pray that you'd meet us uh, in your scriptures and together as a community. In your name we pray, amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. So as I prayed a moment ago, and today we're looking at how we as Christians can recapture that early church distinctive of enemy love, something that was peculiar in the Roman world and just as strange today, both attractive and offensive is this calling toward enemy love. And so today is a little bit of a roadmap of how we're going to do this. If you've been with us through the series, this is nothing new. We're going to ask the three questions. What is it? What is enemy love? Where did it come from for the early Christians? Where did this enemy love emerge from? And then third, why must and how might we enact this kind of enemy love today? So three big questions. Let's begin with the first question. What is enemy love? Now, love is, you know, I use this anytime we talk about love, such a murky word because we'll say the same thing for tacos, for mothers, for everything in between. And then even, you know, you have within our modern moment that love is largely just foot like tolerance. You do you, I do me, and that's what love means. Or love is about warmth of feelings and about how I feel about you. What is love and what does it mean to love our enemies? Does it mean that we take them on a date? Am I flirting with my enemies? I don't think that's what's going on here. Does this mean that I have warm feelings and I, I bubble up with all of these good thoughts about when I think? No, Paul in Romans 12 gives three distinctive key pieces of what he means when he talks about enemy love. It is blessing, it is entrusting, and it is overcoming. Let's look at the first one, blessing. If you look back with me in 12, uh, verse 14 uh, through 19, and then also there in, in 20 at the very beginning, what we find is enemy love is about blessing rather than cursing those who persecute, those who are our enemies. You could define blessing, you'll hear this throughout the day, blessing as willing and working for the good of another at cost to self. If you're taking notes and you want something to like, you know, stick on your refrigerator this week, to bless is to will and work for the good of another at cost to self. And this comes in contradiction or a comparison to what it means to curse. To curse someone is to will and or work for the ruin of another person at cost to them. Blessing is where we become the one giving for the benefit of the other. And so this is what, first and foremost, enemy love is about. Those that are opposed to us, we come to them willing and working for their good at cost to ourselves. Paul details how we can do this more in verses 15 through 17, where he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight. And then he says in a minute, uh, live peaceably with all, do what is honorable with all. Now, some of those verses have showed up in many sermons about how we do kind of like church community stuff, right? You've probably heard that about, you know, discipleship group is when we get together and we're able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we're looking for, and that may totally have implications here. But notice that at the beginning of our passage, verse 14, Paul talks about blessing those who persecute you. And then at the end of that little section there in verse 18, he keeps talking about enemy love, right? Don't avenge yourself. So 15 through 17, we want to like jettison out here of like living humbly and, you know, finding harmony and finding a way to, to rejoice with them when they're rejoicing and weeping when they weep. We see that as being like church stuff. I would argue the context of these verses, Paul's actually saying, this is how you bless your enemies, rejoicing when they rejoice. In a moment, we're going to talk about that doesn't mean rejoicing when they're doing injustice. 
or weeping when they're weeping, finding humility in the way that we carry ourselves with them, working for harmony with the very people who are working for dissonance. This is what the calling of this is, of of empathy, learning to understand why you rejoice and why you weep. We need some of that in this moment. Working for harmony with one another, working from a posture of humility and honoring the image of God in our enemy, even when they are acting in a way that's contrary to that. This is what Paul means when he talks about blessing our enemies. He continues, though, in verse 17 in the beginning of 19, where he details another aspect of blessing your enemies, working and willing for their good at cost to yourself, is by not repaying and never avenging yourself. Of of this kind of non-retaliation, that I don't do tit for tat with my enemies. But there is a, a, a posture of not repaying and never avenging. Why? We'll get to in a moment. But worth seeing here is Paul quoting Jesus himself. Matthew 5, 39 through 41, you'll see it right behind me. Paul says, or Jesus says, excuse me, Jesus says, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This, the fact that this is in my Bible, I still, like this, if this isn't skirting something within you and scratching at something, I don't think we're really receiving what Jesus is saying. He says, uh, turn to them the other ourselves. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. You've heard her use the phrase going the extra mile. That's not talked about you getting a promotion. Jesus uses that in the context of how you treat your enemies. Paul paraphrases that in 12 verse 20, what we read a moment ago. When your enemy is hungry, what do you do? You feed them. When they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. This is how we bless. Not meeting in part with as you've done to me, I do to you. But when you do this to me, I will continue to work in will for your good. Even when you may want to curse me. And this is this kind of creative retaliation towards others' animosity that Jesus calls for. Is it's not eye for an eye, but it's an eye for a blessing. It's, it's, a, it's a slap for a turning to the, finding a way to creatively retaliate against the animosity of our enemies. And then finally, in, in the blessing component of 12 verse 18, we see that blessing is, as far as it depends on us, we work and will for the good of them, for a peaceable life and existence, a shalom-like existence. And notice that this isn't living as far as it depends on you, live peaceably. He's not saying upkeep the status quo. He's not saying skirt things under the rug and wink at injustice. He's saying as far as it work for shalom, work for that deep abiding sense of peace in your city. So the first component of enemy love is blessing. The second is entrusting. In verse 19, right after Paul says, don't avenge yourself, he says what? But leave it for the wrath of God. For vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Oh boy, I thought we were loving our enemies. What's going on here? Now, a couple little details here. First, is enemy love is not excusing injustice or wrong. It is not winking at at the the abuse or awful evils that have been done in the world and going, well, I love you, wink, wink. That's not the best, but, you know, we'll just set that over to the side. Entrusting it to the vengeance, to the wrath of God is allowing us to have a space to name evil for evil, to name injustice and wrong as being wrong. 
And yet we bring what's been done to us. We bring the individuals or the people that have done it and our emotions as valid as they are of anger and and sadness and fear. And we bring them before God in his presence through prayer. And we go, I'm trusting you with all of this. You see what's been said. You see what I haven't even seen. You've seen thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so God, I'm entrusting you. I'm releasing myself of carrying the burden of the sword, of dealing out vengeance upon those who would misdo me. And I'm saying, God, I trust you to judge rightly. And that's part of the promise here of what he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You can trust God because God's not gonna you know, wink at evil. God's not gonna skirt it underneath the rug. And so God, you are the one, you are the just judge. I I entrust them, this situation, and all of it to you. And I ask you to hold me and to hold them in the midst of all of this. Now, it's been said that for many people looking into the Christian faith and hearing these verses like this, like, oh, these Christians that believe in the wrath of God, like, you know what that creates in a person? That makes your heart so, to think that's the God that you serve, a God of wrath and vengeance and anger, and this is the kind of God that you serve, that's what that creates within you. It's actually the opposite when you look throughout history. It is the people who actually have a very strong view of God as judge who are the most loving to their enemies because they're able to entrust that to him. And it's when they go, yeah, you set off the wrath and the vengeance and the judgment. And that's actually when you become, well, I'll just quote one of my favorite books on pastoring of all things. It's called The Art of Pastoring by uh, David Hansen. And the whole book is great, but there's this quote that sticks with me is early in his ministry, he was just tired of talking about the wrath, the judgment, the just judgment of God. And it's like hard to talk about. People don't want to hear it. So he just let go of it. Like theologically and even in his teaching. And and what he realized is as he let go of wrath, he found that he became a more stern, angry, and abusive pastor because he was holding, he now had to become the one, the just judge that was gonna hold everybody responsible. The, The quote that he says is, when we eliminate the God of judgment, we make ourselves now into the judge. When we eliminate the God of vindication, I become my own self appointed vigilante that when we actually have a right view of God as a just judge, and the wrath language may be hard for you, this, this is what Paul says. When we trust God is going to do what is right in the end amidst all the evils of this world, this allows us to not take up our own self-retaliation and def- we can simply love and engage our enemies in trusting that God will do what is right with them. But this again then opens the question, well, even if you might not, take up the sword is you entrusting them over to like the vengeance of God really loving your enemy more on that in a moment you'll have to stay stay with me now let's move to the third piece of what it means to love our enemies it is overcoming look with me in 12 uh, verse 21 where Paul writes don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good this is the capstone of not some separate thing but the whole purpose and movement of what's going on within enemy love is overcoming evil with good. Enemy love is not a a passive-ism of laying down our lives and letting evil trample all over ourselves in the world, but it's about the way that we overcome that evil. I love Paul's paradox of the language that he uses here. When he says we overcome evil with good, he is using military language. That word for overcome can be translated conquer. It's what armies, it's what militants do. They conquer, they take down, they overcome. And Paul says, you, Christian, your weapon is enemy love. It is blessing and is entrusting. It is empathy and working for harmony. 
This is how you take this over. How does this play out though? In verse 20 was your uh, favorite Bible verse. You have it written on your microwave and it's the background on your phone. 1220 about heaping burning coals on someone's head. What in the world is Paul getting at here? Well, Paul's quoting from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 22. And every, there's a lot of you know, interpretive Bible nerd stuff of like, what's Paul mean? All of them though connect to that whatever that burning coals is, it connects to verse 21 of overcoming evil with good and not being overcome. And so I forget, I forget to write down who exactly it was, but the, um, the language was this idea of heaping burning coals is you're heaping like shame. You know when you're sh- you be ashamed of something, you feel guilty, your head gets hot. Is that just me? You like physically feel that shame. And the idea here is that when you meet your enemy's aggression with love, it, it, it almost like, you know, I'm rubber, you're glue. It throws the shame on them and they see themselves for how they're acting. It's that when you go back and forth with each other, you begin to justify yourself even more. But when someone meets you with love, when you're ready for like retaliation and anger, it pushes that energy back on yourself and it turns something around within you is what the Proverbs is getting at. A a repentance that comes from that unexpected kindness. I love uh, Origen's words on this. Uh, Origen was an early church uh, father and pastor, and he used to do Q&As, kind of like I did on Instagram during the pandemic. And uh, in one of these that we have this recorded writing of him doing Q&As, someone asked about this verse. What does it mean to heap burning coals? And Origen said that the language of heaping burning coals is about bringing your enemy to repentance so that overcome by kindness and melted by the warmth of love, they may no longer be an enemy, but a brother or a sister. Pastor Isaac, just about this time last year when we were going through Isaac, told us the story of the musician uh, Daryl Davis. It's an incredible musician. He played with B.B. King, Chuck Berry, among others. And uh, there's a documentary about him called Accidental Courtesy. It's a black musician with a closet full of Klan robes. And how he has gotten them is by over, uh, over 200 uh, men have come out of the clan and have given him their ceremonial robes as they've left the clan. How did he go about doing that? It was through sitting down and befriending and listening and engaging with them. Moving towards his enemies, those that would would hate him and want him dead with love. In a TED Talk that Daryl Davis gave, he said, what I have come to find to be the greatest and most effective and successful weapon, I love that he pulls up that language, that we can use known to man to combat such adversaries as ignorance, racism, hatred, violence, is also the least expensive weapon and the one that's least used by Americans. That weapon is called communication. That open engagement, open conversation that is ladled with, we could say some of that stuff from Romans 12, empathy and harmony and working for peace. That this is what it's all about here. Now, some of you hearing this might think this is foolish idealism. Like, this is not how, yeah, maybe for, you know, maybe for Daryl, maybe for a couple of these, these people, but this is not how, you don't know who I work with, Ryan. Like, you don't, you don't know who they voted for, Ryan. You don't know what kind of stuff they post online, Ryan. You don't know who they, what kind of books they read. You don't know what they said to me. I would just simply say, this is how Christians overcame their enemies in the Roman world. 
is they faced ostracism, persecution, martyrdom, dying for the faith. And they won over their, their witnesses. They won over the very people that killed them as they saw their not just faithfulness to Jesus, but their love for them amid them putting them to death. It won over witnesses and it won over the people, the culprits that actually killed them. The apostle Paul, who our kids are learning about today, is one of them. While breathing like hatred against the church, seeing Jesus changed over this whole new story for him. So the question is, I kind of just gave it away there. Moving from what is enemy love, where did the early church get this? Where did the early church go, hey, you know what? We got this new little messianic movement and I know like the Maccabean revolts and we've had all these like Jewish Messiah movements and the sword has been, you know, you know, up and down depending on, you know, the revival. Like what led to this huge messianic movement that not only extended beyond um, uh, Jews following this Messiah, but, but all of these Gentile people that were all now coming together and they're refusing to pick up the sword to advance and to move or even to defend themselves. Where did this come from? What sparked this revolution? What led them to see love as their weapon? Just a few pages earlier, the Apostle Paul actually gives it to us in Romans chapter 5 where we find in Paul's longest reflection on the death of Jesus in the letter, Romans 5, 6 through 11, he says this. You'll see it behind me. Oh, it's so good. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That is his resurrection life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what is, the God, what is the message? What is the gospel? What is the message of Christianity? What is the purpose and intent of the cross? Paul says in Romans 5 that the self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus was him blessing his enemies while they were his enemies. That in, on the cross, Jesus was willing and working for the good of his enemies which Romans chapter three, if we were to go over a couple more pages, Paul would identify as being everyone that nobody gets out from underneath that, that, that name. All of us live as what Paul uses that language of ungodly, it literally is anti-God. We live lives that are anti-God, pro-self, and in doing so, we make ourselves enemy to the kingdom that God is wanting to build, setting ourselves over and against him, and we stand ourselves as enemies of God. And that is, that is a human thing. That is not a Orion thing or a you thing. That is a human thing. And yet, at great cost to himself, Jesus has chosen to bless his enemies. Specifically through what Paul says, his own death on a bloody cross. And once again, what we talked about a moment ago with entrusting is that through the cross, Jesus was able to do as the son of God more than just entrusting his enemies to God. He reconciled his enemies to God. Paul's language is being saved from that wrath that we talked about a moment ago. 
And so none of this of the cross, none of the thing that's going on within Good Friday or when you look at the forgiveness that you have for Jesus, none of this is about a God winking at evil or a God sweeping the, the, the catastrophes of this world under the rug or excusing it, but him choosing to take on himself the, the implications and consequences of that evil by, again, what he says, justifying through his blood that through the cross he has taken on himself the just consequences and ends of all of our sin and ungodliness, our eneminess, for lack of a better word, and now has saved us from that wrath. That future day of God's vengeance is mine, I will repay. By the blood of Jesus, and, and what he says in 5 verse 1, by faith in him, that wrath, that future day has already been paid and dealt with. And so the cross, as we look at what God has done in Jesus for you and me, is in some way meant to be the coals being scooped up on yours and my head awaking us, filling us not necessarily with, 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 yes, an awareness and a shame and a guilt and a fear in the midst of what our sin in this world and in our lives has brought upon us and those around us, but also an invitation to repentance and a new way of life. Where we see at the cross both the way and the depth and the evil of our sin, but also the greatness and the gift of his love that while we were still enemies, he would die for us that like Origins would say that our hearts through the cross are overcome by the kindness of God, melted by the warmth of his love, that we may no longer be God's enemies, but now his sons and daughters. And so Jesus' victory over his enemies, when we talk about the gospel, we're saying that God has found victory in Christ over his enemies, not through the destruction of his enemies, but through their reconciliation, not through the shedding of their blood, but through the shedding of his own blood. And so the God of the Bible, the God revealed to us in Jesus is the God of enemy love who blesses his enemies while in Christ entering into and taking that wrath is able to remain a just judge. You see, if God were able to just show down and come down to earth and just say, people go, why can't God just forgive us? Why do you have to do the cross? Because then he wouldn't be a just judge. He'd be writing off sin. You talk, we, how many riots have happened in this city and in this country over judges who, looking at grave injustice, wrote it off as not being that big of a deal? And the, the problem is when we want a God who comes down and just forgives is we want a God who will not execute the sentence of what evil has been done to us and by us in the world. And the cross is the place where God is able to remain just judge while still finding forgiveness and reconciliation for people that are trapped in that system. And so this is the way that God works. He remains the just judge as he blesses his enemy and this is how he overcomes evil. So back to the second question. Where did the early church get this kind of enemy love? They got it from the very heart of God. They found it in the very message at the core centrality of the gospel. It was, as we've been saying, an ethic of Easter. The early Christians loved their enemies because God loved them when they were his enemies. And as they did that, they found themselves becoming more like God, which is the key goal of discipleship is to become more like Jesus. When you love your enemies, as they're your enemies, you are stepping into what it means to be like Jesus. They love their enemies because God loves those who are still presently his enemies. 
I love in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter five, right around why we should love our enemies. He goes on to talk about how God makes it rain and he causes the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust alike. You walked in this morning and the weather was beautiful and incredible. And guess what? There are people driving in traffic right now with windows down blasting Nickelback and they're enjoying the same weather today. God causes beautiful weather on the just and the unjust. And so as we step in, I'm sorry, if you like Nickelback, we love you. Um, but I mean, just but think about that. Like, like we could pull up right now on, on your phone. Look at the weather in, in Russia. There's no, there's no lightning storm. There's no hail that's falling, of fire coming down in Russia right now. You go look at Pyongyang, go look at, you, you look at where all of the, you see that as being the evil place, you know, Georgia, whatever. And you look in and lock in and you look at those places where you would go, that's where my enemies live. And they have, it's raining. The, the world continues with God's blessing abounding in goodness, even for people as they're committing some of the worst deeds. And we, again, would want that vengeance here and now. And we have to entrust vengeance is his, he will repay. The early church loved their enemies while they entreated them to be reconciled to God, to find the forgiveness available through the cross. They loved their enemies as they entrusted them, as they prayed uh, to God and they began to work for their revelation of who God is and what he's done. They loved their enemies because the cross and the empty tomb proclaimed this is how God overcomes evil. And they loved their enemies as the body of Christ. They understood this understanding that the church now today exists as the body of Christ present here on earth. And as Christians bear sufferings, it is both their participation in and a representation of God's enemy love for the world. That it doesn't just happen through the cross, it happens through the church today. So the final little questions, why and how as we wrap up. First is why. Why is this kind of enemy love necessary in our world today? Everything's fine. We don't have any enemies. Everything's great. There's not huge wars that are ripping apart our world and political polarization and hostility and division and violence and animosity. No, we live in an age that has this war, like I said, partisan polarization, civil unrest, secularism and racial tension, conspiracies, abortion, gender, CRT. And that's literally just me like, I don't know, like in my notes this week. To go now even in, not just that's a familial and personal and you at work and you with your neighbors, the list can keep going on. Enemy love feels not just peculiar to us, but foolish. Because the response of our world in this moment and the response that you're being shaped into is nothing less than reversal of Romans 12. Look behind me as um, I got out my theos thesaurus, I almost said theosaurus, thesaurus. So let's just, let's just reverse Romans 12 and see if it sounds like anything that we're living in today. Curse those who persecute you. Curse and do not bless them. Rejoice with those who weep and weep with those who rejoice. Live in dissonance with one another. Be haughty and associate only with those like you and can benefit you. Always be wise in your own sight. Repay everyone evil for evil and give thought to do, say, and post what is honorable in the sight of your tribe. If possible, so far as depends on them, live peaceably with all. 
Avenge yourselves. Don't leave it for the wrath of God. For vengeance is yours. You must repay, exclude, cut out, demean, curse, and cancel. So if your enemy is hungry, ignore him. If he's thirsty, turn the other way. For by doing so, you will leave him where he is. Be overcome by evil and overcome good with evil. We are in a moment that is completely in need of enemy love if we're gonna get anywhere. And the heartbreaking truth of this is this kind of posture is not out there around our world, gathering in churches, specifically our country right now, around our country gathering at this very hour are a bunch of people who look no different. I have seen that within our church. I have seen that within pastor buddies and their Christian communities. New York Times this week, Osway sent it to me, this post about the seismic shift that's fracturing churches. So you know when something's like happening within the church world and the New York Times picks it up, it's actually like worth paying attention to. And it's this very issue. People identifying with the cross of Jesus and the enemy love that while we were still sinners, they'll like sing songs about this. While we were still enemies of God, he loved us. And then they look across the pew at so-and-so, you know, tweeting and posting about them. This is what's leading to this huge swath of pastors that are leaving the ministry is there's been a, an, an, an insane amount of loss of discipleship shaping around enemy love within our church culture. And I don't mean that just here at Collective, I mean that around. And if the church is going to mean anything to our world in the coming months and years, within our generation, enemy love is going to be a central practice for us to lean into. In this age, that call to enemy love is, first and foremost, we're not just playing this because it's efficient or helpful. It's what God calls us to do in Christ. But second, it does have this ability to be just as offensive and attractive as it was in the Roman world. As we overcome Jesus style through blessing our enemies by meeting them with empathy and harmony, humility, and honoring them as image bearers in the midst of their aggression with non-retaliation and forgiveness. And this enemy love is not, hear me, varying degrees of like, everybody's just like, you know, kind of right. And the goal is like, no, you like, Daryl Davis is not like, yeah, those clan guys, like we're just, we just kind of see a little bit differently on things. No, this, this, this kind of enemy love doesn't go, oh no, we, we identify sin. Evil is being done within this world. We're not skirting and winking things off and saying, can't we all just get along? We're not working to keep the status quo and peacekeeping. We're called to do this as our mode of peacemaking. And so if there is going to be any way out of the age of outrage, it is going to be nuanced. It is going to be complicated to be sure. But the way of Jesus demands that that first step and ongoing posture amid it all is love. Working and willing for the good of the other on the other side of whatever boundary line you make at cost to myself. How can we do this? Well, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has a conversation with, with a young man and the young man comes and He's trying to figure out, you know, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, how do I get into this kingdom of God thing? And uh, he goes, you know, Jesus asked the guy, you know, what, what's, what's the Torah say? What do the scriptures say? Well, uh, love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes like, yeah, that's it. You've got it. And then he immediately fires back, who's my neighbor? I think after hearing a teaching like this, it is very easy for us to, to you know, write, you know, oh, the implication of the gospel is enemy love. And then the question is, who's your enemy? Who are you called to love and bless, empathy, harmony, honor? Who in your life are you called to do this with? 
And that's why the practice for this week at collectivechurch.com slash current series. If you'll scroll down to the practice section, you'll see week four of enemy love. Uh, I am inviting us to take some time and, and get it, whether that's journal or your little notes app, and to begin to think through who are my enemies. A simple definition is just any and all people that you don't get along with. I was talking to my wife Erin about this this week as I was prepping on this. And she's like, so who, who is my enemies? How do I fill that in? And I was like, you know, I think a good starting place is any and all people I don't get along with. And she's like, I don't like that. That, that list is too long, you know? Like, and and that we all agree. Like, you laugh because it's not just like an Aaron problem. I mean, maybe. But uh, that's, that's true with all of us. As you, I, like, I don't, can the notes app go that long? Like, do, can I get, get multiple journals? Or you could just say any and all people that don't get along with you. And, and to, to really make sure that you lean into the full breadth of that language. And what I mean by that is to go from all the way from political, national, down to the personal. And fill in along that line of, of national work, family, ideological, political, that full range. Because what, we're, what most of us are really prone to do is we will either take one end of the spectrum when it comes to enemy love. So you have either the personal where it's just like, you know, oh, stinky Jeff at work or whatever. Like, I can't stand him. We, you know, that's my, and so you take the enemy love passage and you think that's, it's about that. And, and yes, but then you don't extend that to the ideological differences or even the political national level. On the other side is you have the social activist who calls for like, no more war. And he has just like this whole experience of like multiple divorces and all of these relationships that he's burnt. And so you see what we need is a, a wholeness of where any and all, I'm thinking through the lens of enemy love. And so what we should do is what he says in 12 verse 17, give thought to do what is honorable. Literally in the Greek, it's to plan, to make a plan to do what is honorable. So after you list some of those names, to then begin to prayerfully consider a plan of how can I move towards them with empathy and harmony, humility, honor, non-retaliation, blessing. For some, there may be some names that you go, entrusting is really the biggest step for me right now. And that's really all I can do is prayerfully entrust them to God. And that's okay. But as a helpful step, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we use it all the time at weddings. But while we're talking about enemy love, I think it's worth reading this through the lens of. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Think about this in the context, not of marriage or even church life, with your enemies. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's, just, it's not selfish. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at injustice, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Both of those together being not that you just believe whatever conspiracy your enemy gives you, but you're believing in the best for them and a hope for some kind of future beyond the enemy relationship. And it endures all things. Now, one big footnote to give here is enemy love is not about avoiding conflict. Enemy love is about how we do conflict. It's not about upkeeping the status quo. It's not about remaining silent in injustice. We just saw that. But it's about rejoicing in truth as we carry ourselves in love with that goal of what Paul said, living peaceably with all, making peace, pointing people to the reconciliation available in Christ. And in some instances, this is, this is why the, the footnotes is necessary. There are some instances where there are boundaries that need to be put in place and there are distances and separation that needs to happen for the good of everyone. 
And so enemy love does not mean staying with an abusive spouse. It doesn't mean continuing in tra- a traumatic recourse with parents or something like that that you have to stay in. There are times when for the sake of your good, because I love you and I want the best for you, this relationship isn't good for you and it's not good for me. But with an an asterisk on that footnote, I think sometimes we're very quick to like, they're toxic and we cut people out of our lives. So hold that intention. There is a time and a place, but just because you don't get along with someone or they see things differently than you, that doesn't mean that you get to cut them out of your life. Now, this brings up a whole host of other questions um, that you'll see behind me. Questions like this. Um, So enemy love, what about self-defense? What about killing to save another person when me loving my neighbor and loving my enemy conflict? What do we do here? What about protecting your uh, family from a home intruder? What about the government? What about serving in military? What if you're not in a role that involves killing? What about serving on the police force? What about just war theory? What about gun rights versus gun control? What about Old Testament? What about Revelation? And so get your pens out. I'm gonna answer all of these really quickly. Um, There's a whole host of questions. Now here's the thing. All Christians everywhere, we agree to the baseline of enemy love. When we get into these kinds of questions, there's a diversity of like faithful, Jesus-loving, enemy-loving positions on some of these things. Um, But I think every Christian needs to think through these for themselves because what most often happens is we get shaped by the shows and the movies and the things in the world that we watch. And we just assume that violence is always necessarily a good thing. And we jump to that. And so for Christians, I would say, uh, collectivechurch.com, <laughs> current series, go all the way to the bottom of the page. There's a book, a handful of little podcasts to kind of help begin to, to spend some time of you considering this for yourself. So all of this is because we follow Jesus in the way of enemy love. That though we were his enemies through the cross, Jesus has made us his friends. He has made us brothers and sisters of one another. He's made us sons and daughters of God. Enemy love is at the heart of the gospel. And so then it must be at the heart of Jesus' church. Let's pray.